Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bad History. Bad History. Today is a very special episode in the Bad History canon. Uh, and you know why, Dave? It's episode 25. We've been doing this it's shit for 25 episodes. Woo! It's episode 25, and Dave, I'm exhausted. You know why I'm exhausted? Because we did all of these in one week and then have slowly been releasing them. Yes, we recorded all of these in a 25-hour time period. Uh, we, we fooled you. Haha, <laughs> fooled. And uh, and and we are we are ready for for sleep. We're ready for a nap. I would say all of the weeks have been lies. What did you do this week? The same thing. The same exact Lie. thing. Lie to our viewers. We're, we're we're approaching the twilight hour of bad history. That's when we become werewolves and vampires. Exactly. And tomorrow we're going to start recording season two, which is going to be another twenty five twenty five hours of. Of nonstop history don't, for us. Don't, don't promise anything. Don't promise anything. Do you, do you not believe? I don't believe. Do you, do you not believe in true love? I don't believe. But you know what I do believe in? What do you believe in? I believe in this is going to be a very special episode of Bad History. Because what are we doing today, Stephen? Today we are doing rapid fire historical misconceptions. So the plan is, is Stephen and I each took five major historical misconceptions and we're going to rapid fire off and tell you about them and how they are and how they're believed to be because we love doing historical misconceptions and we thought this would be a great way to close out, I guess, the first part act season. I don't know what we're going to call it of the show. Yeah, book one of the series. Book one of the series. We're going to be yeah. taking a little break, right, Stephen? But we yeah. will have some programming in the in-between before we come back later on in the summer. Uh, so look out for that. But, Stephen, 25 episodes, including three historical hangouts and a bunch of other yes. bullshit. How do you feel about it? Do you think we've come a long way? Do you think it's gotten better? Do you think we could do a lot better do you think we suck we should give up what do you, what do you think what do you think steven well i talked to the guys upstairs and they're they're really loving it oh that's good they're really loving what we're putting out one thing they did suggest is that we might not be reaching the kids as well as we could they gave us a bunch of tasty memes to throw in to our show maybe we should swear less a bit for the kiddies you think we do say shit and fuck and all that kind of shit and fuck uh, a lot yeah, maybe. They didn't seem they didn't seem particularly upset about that. Oh, okay. It was more just about our our lack of memes. Okay. So but include more memes. More memes I think is what they're saying. More epic memes. Right. They want us to be more in touch with the youth. Uh but but really though I think we've come a long way over 25 episodes, 28 if you count the three historical misconceptions, like way more than that if you count all the the completely off topic Monday episodes, which we kind uh, of uh we kind of well, uh, stopped doing. <laughs> yeah, listen, we're not perfect, okay? We kept the regular episodes aflowing, but I think we've done pretty well. We've improved, I would say, drastically just our our recording quality. Uh, we don't riff about Van Helsing for 10 minutes before the episode actually starts. I think that's why the show has gone down in quality. Yeah, that that what you're thinking? Yeah. I want to just do the Van Helsing cast. Can we do the yeah. Van Helsing cast during the break? If if this if this if this if this podcast pulls in enough juice, if this pull podcast pulls in enough clams, then we'll do an all Van Helsing cast. I'm excited, but uh, 
But no, I think Dave, how do you feel about it? How do you feel? This is episode twenty-five. This is a milestone for for anyone who does this sort of thing. How do you feel about the show thus far? Well, I think one thing is interesting is the sort of like audio quality war you and I had going on for a while, mm-hmm. where we would just one up each other. Yeah, and now we're we're pretty even, and um, any more would cost us like hundreds of dollars. So we're probably gonna stay where we are. Um, the storytelling is a lot better. Um, Steven, I know this has been really beneficial to you because you're going to be lecturing and teaching coming up real soon. Yes. Uh, history wise. So I'm sure being able to speak and enunciate and then listen back to it has definitely helped your, your teaching a lot. Um, we definitely don't stammer or, you know, it might be a trick of editing, but I feel like, you know, we're more fluid in our storytelling is a lot better. I wouldn't recommend going back and listening to the first episodes. Um, they're really rough but uh, <laughs> they are but now like you know i think we've got a pretty solid thing going by and um you know the future is going to be interesting and uh i can't wait but i want to i think we should we should get into this what do you think yeah no i think we should too because we got a lot of stuff yeah this is to, a big one to talk about this this might be a longer one but i'm okay with that if you're okay with that listeners i'm okay See that listener uh, says they're okay. So oh, uh, thanks, great. listeners. Thanks, thanks, guy over there thanks. in the corner. Thanks. Sweet. So, what do you say? Uh, the way, we're not going to do musical interludes between each this time. Maybe just now. But uh, I say, let's just go for it, Stephen. Let's just yeah, do sure, it. whatever. Fuck, play, play the first music bit. All right, Stephen. Yeah, my first historical misconception. This is one that you and I talk about a lot. We're big fans of because it's like really interesting how you learn it when you're younger and then when you're older, how you actually learn it. It's the War of 1812. Hit me. So the backstory, the War of 1812 is a three-year conflict between the United States and Great Britain. Now, what most people think is that the War of 1812 is a War of Independence Part 2. Um, but the reasons why we actually have the War of 1812 are more interesting. And another thing is Americans won. Like, the U.S. won the War of 1812. And that's sort of a hot topic of debate, but it's definitely not a cut-and-dry America won. Um, I- I'm going to go into it a little bit more, but what really happened is the British didn't actually try to win this war. They were really busy with Napoleon. And when the war ended, they just burned the capital and went home to deal with him. <laughs> but because they left, America touts it as this huge victory. So, the War of 1812. War was declared, actually, by the United States. A lot of people don't know that. Um, this was for a bunch of reasons. Paramount among these are naval trade blockades and restrictions put up by the British against trading with the French. Of course, Britain is not good friends with France at this point because of Napoleon. Also, the British impressment of American merchants. Do you know what impressment is, Stephen? No. So, the British would uh, catch these American merchant ships and force the crews to join the British Navy. So, that pissed off the Americans a lot. I don't uh, know why. I don't get that. <laughs> but. Also, a little less known is the British support 
for Native American unification and the Tecumseh Confederacy, which was this sort of large conglomerate in the Northeast and Midwest of Native American tribes coming together to form uh, a country and sort of a buffer against the United States traveling further west. And then another one that a lot of people don't know about, but is kind of a big sort of uh, news media reason why this war happened, was the Chesapeake Leopard Affair. And that is the HMS Leopard attacked the U.S. frigate, the USS Chesapeake. What happened was the Leopard was looking for Royal Navy deserters. And the Leopard actually broadsided and bordered without permission the USS Chesapeake and took four crew members and hanged one of them. And this is seemingly between two non-warring entities, right? Mm -hmm. So this would really get under the United States's, you know, under their nerves, and they decided to go to war. Now, the notion of who won is the real big misconception we're talking about here. So a lot of people think the U.S. won because of the conditions of the Treaty of Ghent. The British left, and all the U.S. got to keep their territories. Nothing really changed hands, right? But the Canadians who were actually really involved in this war don't see it that way. The U.S. actually invaded into Canada, and the invading armies were stopped by the Canadian militia. And this dis- or this inspired a huge development in the Canadian identity and nationalism. They weren't Americans. They were separate from the United States. And they got to choose to be loyal to Britain. The British also don't see this as a U.S. victory. They fought a mainly defensive war in the beginning. Because war was declared on them, they didn't have a choice. But most of their forces and most of their navy were actually in Europe fighting Napoleon. But once Napoleon was subdued for a while, they began to intensify. And this was in 1814. But as you know, Stephen, in 1815, Napoleon returned and the Mm -hmm. British freaked the fuck out and hauled ass back to Europe. But on their way, they burned the capital to the ground as a goodbye present. And the War of 1812 is really barely taught in British schools because it's mostly considered a small offshoot of the Napoleonic Wars. Because the U.S. and Napoleon were kind of friends during this time period. So, in conclusion for this misconception, I think the U.S. puts a lot of stock into the victory of the War of 1812. Thinking that it sort of reaffirms the victory of the War of Independence. I mean, our national anthem comes from it. But pretty much everyone else on the planet thinks that we lost. Our capital was burned. The U.S. had way more casualties and nothing was gained. Although nothing was really lost, nothing right. was, nothing was gained. So the War of 1812, not really a major US victory like we portray it in history class. So Yeah. And then I remember Yeah. No, go ahead. Oh no, I was going to say I remember when I talked about the World War of 1812 and an episode we did and I honestly can't remember which one if I'm going to front. Uh I said that if for a lot of Americans, it kind of reaffirmed the fact that they did the right thing and were like, okay, being their own country. Yeah. But, but that was just the American perspective. Yeah. This is also like 25 to 30 years after the war of independence. Do you know what I mean? So it's, right, right, it's yeah. like a new generation that kind of needed to prove themselves that they were an independent country from the British and they did you know the war ended and then the British didn't take anything back 
but you know it <laughs> it's not a victory they burn the capital in no. civilization 5 that's one of the ways you win is you burn the capital <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the misconceptions of the war of 1812 oh hell yeah steve okay yeah uh, what is your first historical misconception so my first historical misconception is my i'm gonna argue my favorite okay um so i'm gonna kind of jump in and you know head first in this bad boy do it i'm gonna talk about the sinking of the lusitania all right so dave i know you i'm sure you've heard of the lusitania before yeah 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 the lusitania was a british uh uh ship a british it's um not a car a cargo ship and passenger ship it was it kind of uh, functioned as both. It's officially called an ocean liner, but it yeah, did. It was, it was all. It was kind of a vacation ship in the way that the media portrayed it, right? Right, exactly. I don't, I don't want to call it a cruise ship because I don't think that's the right word. Yeah. But it, it had you know a first class area. It had places for you know people to, to 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 hang out comfortably and kind of enjoy their six week crossing across the Atlantic. Yeah, it was it was, it was a civilian transatlantic vessel pretty much. Exactly. Perfect. Yeah. Um so the Lusitania is most famously known for being sunk by German U boats uh as it was leaving America to go to Great Britain during World War One. And this is what prompted well not the only reason, but it's a spark that lit, lit the powder keg that prompted the Americans to enter World War One. Yeah. Uh and there's a lot of misconceptions that surround this. The biggest one that I heard when I was taking history classes was that the it was completely unprovoked and that the Amer- Americans had no idea that it was happening. Um, because as it was leaving America going to the United, or to, to the United Kingdom, it was ma- majorly Americans on the ship. Uh, so a lot of Americans lost their lives. And that's kind of what prompted the United States to join the war. But... There are two things wrong with this. One, okay. the first is that the United States had warning that this was probably going to happen. Um, okay. This came in, in kind of two pieces. First of all, uh, as the Lusitania was heading over from Britain to the United States, uh, there was there was great probability that German U-boats were kind of tracking them down and keeping an eye on them. Um, and so this, this right away is a huge red flag. Uh and then number two, and this is most kind of importantly, is that the the Germans issued a warning to the United States. Okay. The German the Ger- German embassy kind of knowing what the hell was up, knowing what was about to go down, released in a newspaper this uh, little article that said, you know, if you are planning on taking the next. Uh, like the, if you're planning on boarding Lusitania to go back to to go to Britain, don't do it because it's <laughs> gonna get attacked by German U-boats. Pretty much what it said. Uh, I can pull up officially what it said because it's pretty short. It's not that long. Um, let me see it. This is this is what the uh, Imperial German Embassy issued, uh, in and this was in Washington D.C. in April twenty second. 
And it said, Travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies and Great Britain and her allies, that the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles. Uh, in accordance with a formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters, and that travel sailing in the war zone on the ships of Great Britain on her, or her allies do so at their own risk. So they were... They were just straight up warned that they were going to be sunk, pretty much. Exactly. If if I was planning on jumping on board the Lusitania, and I read that, I would shit my pants, and I would not jump on board the Lusitania. <laughs> so, they were formally weren't warned. This is strike number one. The second strike, and there aren't going to be three strikes, there's just two strikes, I'm just warning you now. The second strike okay. against, the, against the Lusitania is that the ship was carrying weapons for Britain. This isn't something that's some sort of, like, tinfoil hat conspiracy. No, this was documented that they were carrying weapons for Britain. Did the Germans know that the Lusitania was carrying weapons oh, yeah. for Britain? Okay. Oh, well, even if they even if they didn't have a, a solid, like, idea, even if they didn't know for sure, I mean, they, they probably made a very reasonable and probably probably were able to kind of put the pieces together. Okay. Um, but But, yeah, they were carrying... Not only, like, weapons and uh, artillery, but also, like, explosives and things to make explosives. Um, They were carrying aluminum powder, which is a common ingredient in high-grade explosives. And so, the minute that weapons were put onto the ship, it no longer became a civilian ship. Yeah. It became a ship that was, you know, all of a sudden part of this conflict because it was arming a country yeah you can't be neutral if you're in the arms dealing trade you know what i mean exactly um so i'm not trying in any way to say they had it coming but it, i think i think we put we kind of say oh they had no idea it was completely out of out of the blue those damn germans those terrible evil germans and it's like no the, yeah like they had no reason to sink the lusitania but it turns out they actually had like reason to sink the lusitania they had had real reason to sink the lusitania and uh so in in many ways i mean i think it was a really shitty thing for the united states to do to throw a bunch of these weapons on a primarily civilian ship yeah uh like you're endangering your own civilians at that point you know exactly exactly i wonder if Um, the civilians knew when they boarded the ship like what kind of cargo they were carrying Oh, I doubt it. Yeah, because that would make me, you know, all things considered, you shouldn't have gotten on it to begin with. But if you knew that you were carrying, you know, explosive material. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, I, you know, I think it's just a stupid thing to do to, 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 to sail across the Atlantic Ocean while a freaking war is going on. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense. But. Yeah, but that's... That, that's my historical misconception. It's a good one. Are yeah, you, thank you. You ready for my number two? Yeah, let me hear your number two. So this one is a little less of like a big macro deal. Or I guess it's actually way more macro and less micro like our others were. Um, so Steven knows a lot about this. So does Kat. Um, but I actually haven't studied too much Northern Europe medieval history. Um, and it's the notion of vikings and their helmets helmets with two l's thank you very much so 
Vikings <laughs> are depicted in art and media as wearing sort of horned or winged helmets or caps. And they drink kind of out of the skulls of warriors they have defeated. You know, they're these bloodthirsty, demonic monsters who just tore, like, a path through Europe for fucking the lulls, pretty much. Well, I mean, Dave, they are warrior poets. <laughs> they're warrior poets. But did, I know you know this, Stephen, and a lot of our listeners might, but I think the general consensus, they might not know... That we have absolutely zero evidence that Vikings wore any type of horned or ornately decorated helmet while raiding. In fact, there's evidence that other European knights from France and England and Germany wore ceremonially decorated helmets with horns on them for tournaments and festivals. These helmets with horns would have been cumbersome and really obtrusive to the nature of raids and battle that the Vikings participated in. But why is this stereotype and why is this misconception held? The stereotype of the Viking as an animal barbarian with horns drinking blood from skulls is purely a media fabrication. Most notably, it began from Wagner's Der Ring der Nibelungen. Um, it's a famous musical sort of four-part symphony type thing. It's where Ride of the Valkyries comes from. Um, edit in Ride of the Valkyries, Dave. You got it, Dave. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, that's dun, right. Dun, 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 Stephen, that's not, that's not Ride of the Valkyries. <laughs> it's close enough, though, right? So, uh, also, these helmets and this sort of savage behavior is a propagation from media and other Viking representation. You know, you see the Minnesota Vikings or famous paintings such as Sir Frank Bernard Dixie's Funeral of a Viking. You see statues such as in Gimli, Manitoba, Canada. And you see celebrities like Flava Flav. All of these guys wearing these helmets with these big horns on them devilish and bull-like almost like animals and as far as skull drinking skull drinking that's really just more you know media influence the vikings though they were brutal and violent in their raids they were human beings you know and uh they had cups they had goblets they had all these kinds of things why would they drink out of skulls that's gross even they thought it was gross and of course they wouldn't have been able to successfully, you know, fight with these big, heavy, ornate helmets. So that's just a little historical misconception that kind of bugs me when I see it. You know, Vikings wore yeah. helmets just like everybody else back then. Yeah, hell yeah, dude. I uh, I actually know a, a little bit about this. Uh, so the biggest, and this is the one of the, the thing that like really kind of sold me on this, was that if you think about the horn helmet design... It's a really, really shitty design if you're going to go run into battle. Yeah, Because what does someone have to do to remove either the helmet off your head or to, like, slam your head into the ground? Just hit the horns really fucking hard. Right, exactly. Or catch your sword in the horn, in, like, between the horn and the helmet. Just, like, move it in any direction, and it's either going to bring your head to the ground or it's going to remove your helmet. It's almost cartoonish, Um, you know, where you, like put the bucket on someone's head and smack it with a spoon it's like just put your sword between the horns and shake it about yes <laughs> but there are the the kind of the the battle sites and the graves that archaeologists have dug up have 
shown that Viking hats aren't like that. They're very, they're round and they fit over the head and, you know, kind of like a snug manner. They don't have the horns. And you know who I really blame for that? Who do you blame for that? The fucking artists. Oh yeah. The fucking artists of the late medieval age. I can't remember which episode I bitched about the artists of the late medieval age for ruining something, but it was, it was something. They fucked up. Well, they they had like a purpose, you know, the Vikings came in and they were the devil and they needed to be more devilishly depicted. That's very true. That's a good point. So that's uh, my my second historical misconception. Steven, let it fly. Rapid fire. Right right on. So the second historical misconception I'm going to be looking at actually came from a listener of our show. Uh, And it's one it's one that I think we were going to cover. We, we, were, we were thinking it would be a good one to cover um, anyway, but I think, you know, I want to give him a shout out. It's from uh, uh, History Podcasts, uh, at HistoryCast on Twitter. Uh, we, we mentioned them before on the show, but they said that we should talk about the phrase, history is written by the victors. Okay, we've kind of talked about this one in we have. episode intro? Maybe not episode I th- one. I, th- I, think, I think we mentioned it a few times. Uh but uh, but, but I want to kind of formally it. address it. So the idea that history is written by the victors is a kind of an example of lazy history. Yeah, uh, it's 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 almost like it's not it's almost like an excuse for having a very very narrow point of view and for honestly not doing research. Uh, so we can say that oh, modern history now is we only perceive it the way that it's perceived because of the fact that these people won these wars which doesn't isn't really true because one of the core components of history is having multiple multiple perspectives like you're not gonna be taken seriously unless you take multiple perspectives it's almost like arguing a case because in many ways you're arguing your thesis uh so like the scientific method if you work through your thesis and you find that it's not right that it doesn't pan out then that's fine that's part of the process and you explain why but it's about having these perspectives like you're not gonna be taken you're not going to be taken seriously as a historian unless you have multiple perspectives and you look at things multiple different ways and saying, you know, well, this happened, but this could also happen. And this is how we kind of have to view it. Um, and so this whole thing, history is written by the victors, isn't really true because while we do use the victors account and I mean, I'm going to talk about war again, but this is, you know, the victors is a term that could be applied to many different things. But, but if we look at like war, if we look at, okay, so, uh, country X won this war, um, so that's what our history is based around. But that's not true because we still look at country Y's side. Why did they lose the war? Yeah, uh, bad what, history uh, is written by the winners, right? Ex- exactly, exactly. So <laughs> I mean, we we still look at you know why did they lose the war? What was the aftermath? What happened to them after the war? I mean, I'll give you a perfectly good example. When we study World War One, we don't we don't just all of a sudden forget about Germany. No, you're right. Yeah. A lot we, of like oh, the major literature comes from Germany, you know? Exactly. All quiet on the Western Front, which is like the literary, you know, the the like standard literary narrative of World War One is from a German platoon perspective. Right, exactly. And it's like the and and we don't our our history now isn't based around this idea that Oh, World War Two started because the Germans were just inherently evil. It's like no, the Germans got really, really fucked over after World War One, and it led to this, you know, really terrible person being kind of put into office. 
like we we let that happen we the victors let that happen and directly cause that or at least partly cause that um so i think that this it's really lazy history saying that history is written by the victor now i will say that in some instances it 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 can be kind of accurate um but only in very specific instances and with that i mean where we don't have much historical fact to go off of so i'm thinking a lot about roman history uh where our records from that time period really only come from certain very specific people or places so we don't really get multiple different perspectives we really only get the one bias and like that's not narrative bias isn't the same thing as history being written by the winners narrative bias is the sources that we have you have to identify the bias of that source and then you have to do history based on that. Do you know what I mean? You don't take Herodotus's word as law. You have to decipher Herodotus's word, even though he's one of the most famous historians of all time. You know what I mean? Exactly. And historians do this thing that uh, I think is pretty great called guesstimation, where we make a... <laughs> We make a very educated guess about what actually might have happened. We had no way to prove it, but we make a guesstimation. And, you know, obviously using stuff to back it up, but it's still something that you have to do sometimes when records just don't exist. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I think I've ranted about that long enough, and that is my uh, second historical misconception. Really quick, this is probably really fucked up, but I'm going to do it anyway. College of Charleston, Dr. Poole, first history class I ever took. I got into a discussion with him about the nature of history because it was a historiography class. And he told me, straight to my face, he said, history is written by the winners. And I said, then why are all the greatest Civil War historians from the former Confederacy? And he told me to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you just got to think about that, right? But that's that's yeah. like the big one, right? That's the big um, sort of misconception in historiography. It's the misconception in methods. So it's really good that you covered that, Stephen. Thank you. Uh, the next one that I want to cover is really close to my heart because uh, I've had a lot of friends lost to this misconception and it drives me insane. This is the serious misconception of ancient aliens. Okay? <laughs> so... I want to precursor this by saying that there's no way to know if aliens came to Earth at some point and did stuff. But the basis for modern ancient aliens theory is total bullshit. I'm sorry if you believe it, and I'm going to explain that right now. So the notion that aliens came to Earth to teach primitive humans advanced engineering and math and culture, right? This is best visualized by the massive structures of the pyramids of Giza and Teotihuacan. These two pyramids built thousands of miles away on different continents are these huge things. And early humans could not have been able to construct these massive buildings with such precision. And the argument is, is because we cannot do this today. This along with mythological parables such as the Book of Enoch possibly speaking of visitors from outer space and images of extraterrestrial beings and this major sort of theory and philosophy i guess was spread by the swiss author and pseudoscientist eric von daniken in his famous work chariots of the gods so right off the bat i want to say 
all evidence presented to substantiate these claims are based on large misunderstandings and general ethnocentric perspectives. There is no, no solid proof that can be derived from any of Von Daniken's claims. They are based on the notion that primitive people could not do these things. They were primitive. They did not have Western education. The claims that we cannot replicate how they did these feats, like build the pyramids, are absurd. We can replicate them. We can show exactly how they were done. And all other evidence is purely anecdotal and explained through culture. Aliens in artistic depictions are just commonly misunderstood angels or other mythological beings. Extraterrestrial merges with the spiritual, the mythical. And these claims can borderline be racist outright and show a lack of understanding of the accomplishments of ancient peoples. Von Daniken has often redacted claims or omitted evidence to the contrary of his statements, and several cases of actual fabrication exist. Now, I have an anthropology degree. I have a history degree. And I want to let you guys know that no serious anthropologist or historian has ever given the notion of ancient aliens any serious thought or support due to the aggressively pseudoscientific nature of its study and its publication. This is something that so many people believe in because of just recent harmful media productions, like on the History Channel, right? And mm-hmm. science fiction films like Prometheus, I guess. Yet many do not understand, like these people who believe this, that I swear, a mere 15 fucking minutes of research refutes nearly all of the major claims of Von Daniken's supporters and those who believe, and that's in quotes, in ancient aliens. History is not something that we believe in. History is only true if there's hard evidence or extrapolated conclusion based on the evidence, and the evidence isn't there. So it drives me fucking insane that there is such an ancient aliens following like steven you've seen this yeah i've had to talk to some of our friends seriously and i'm not calling any of you guys out i love you to death but ancient aliens is completely absurd it's completely absurdist all of the evidence all the statements if you think about them logically or have any of the evidence in front of you you realize it's bullshit. And like I said, it's all based on these somewhat racist and bigoted notions that, of course, the people of the past can have done this without help because they weren't done in, like, Europe or something like that. You know what I mean? Right. I was going to... S- super uh, fucked up. I was going to say, it sounds like social Darwinism. Yeah, it's really ethnocentric. And we've even I've even gone over this in sort of deeper biological anthropology courses where... You know, professors have talked about, um, like, notions of origin and stuff like that. And they'll just say... And also, there's this group of people that believe in the Von Daniken theory presented in Chariots of the Gods. And that's all pseudoscience. It's pseudo. It's fake. There's none of it that's real. Yet, the History Channel for a while was dominated by it. You know what I mean? And it, it drives me insane. All of the evidence out there is so like you can scrutinize it to death but you can't convince these people and i'm sorry if you're a listener and you believe in ancient aliens but i implore you 
to just know that history is not something that you have to believe in. History is not faith-based. We know what we do because of hard evidence and also because of people who are trained to deal with that evidence's conclusions. Like, there's none of that. Von Daniken is a novelist. He is just as well qualified to talk about the origins of humanity as, you know, H.G. Wells. Yeah, so that's a big historical misconception. And I know it's not held by a lot of major people, but the fact that it's sort of a discussion point is really disturbing to me, especially in the the study of anthropology and history. So, ancient aliens, don't fucking believe their lies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that's uh that's pretty good. I I, I ancient aliens bugs me too. Because it just doesn't make any damn sense. And so many people believe in it, man. It makes me so sad. People who are, like, intelligent, you know? It's it's just, like, it sucks. I hate it. I'm so sorry. But this one is, like, my biggest pet peeve. Because it really just... It's racist. If you believe in ancient aliens, yeah. you can only do it through sort of racist reasoning. Yeah, no, for sure. Like, yeah, it's bad, dude. Like... It's because it's so easy to believe in. I think that's why people do it. Yeah, it's it's like so cool to believe it too. Like, oh, aliens, yeah, oh, fuck yeah. Uh, uh. They couldn't like, have no. done the pyramids because that shit's hard. Well, guess what? We <laughs> know exactly how they fucking did the pyramids. So it's like, they couldn't they couldn't do the pyramids because I couldn't do the pyramids. Yeah, <laughs> it's the same reason for saying that like that like climate change doesn't exist because it's cold where I am. <laughs> well, you, we're not even gonna touch on that, yeah. <laughs> Stephen. All right, what's your next one, dude? All right, so my third historical misconception was actually sent in to us by a listener. Oh, nice. Uh, our li- yeah, our uh, our listener Ronan sent it in. I'm sorry if I got your name wrong. Um, he he asked us to look at the Easter, the Irish Easter Rising, um, which is something I really didn't know much about, but I thought, oh, this would be really cool to kind of dig into and see if I can actually find something out about it. And I did find some um, pretty interesting misconceptions about it. Have you heard of this, the Easter Rising, the Irish Easter Rising? Yeah, but like very superficially, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Irish Easter Rising happened in April of 1916, and we actually just passed the uh, anniversary of it. Oh, which nice. is why. Yeah, which is which is why he asked us to talk about it, which I think is really cool. I think it's really relevant. Um, so what it was was it was this uh, uprising orchestrated by the Irish because uh, against the British because the British were kind of did have a firm grip on Ireland, and for a lot of people they didn't like that. And so the there was it was led by uh, a team of seven people who uh, kind of orchestrated this uprising that that didn't last that long. Um, but it's you know it was big enough and substantial enough that it's it's still talked about today. Uh, so I want to kind of talk about the, the the misconceptions of it that I found uh, because on the surface level it seems all pretty straightforward, but there are some that uh, that I kind of want to talk about. Um, so it's really kind of widely considered to be one of the first successful steps by the Irish to remove British rule, but this isn't exactly exactly uh, true. First of all, it didn't take place over all of Ireland. In reality, it really only take, took place in Dublin, um, which makes sense. It was it's, you know the I'm pretty sure the largest city in Ireland. I could be wrong about that, but uh, but there were some 
uh, there were some ri- uprisings in other in other cities in other towns that just weren't successful. They didn't get any momentum. They didn't get off the ground at all. So it really took place primi- uh, primarily in Dublin. So it's really hard to kind of call this Irish thing when it really only took place in one city. Yeah, um, that's kind of frustrating, you know, when it's just like the biggest right. one becomes the standard. You know, that happens a lot in French history where there's like the Paris right. history and it's oh, not yeah. the French history. Oh, so. yeah. Quick di- quick divergent. When France uh, when Fl- France revolted, a lot of the other large cities in France wanted to side with the king. Um, and I think I've talked about this during the French Revolution episode, but a lot of the cities had to go be sacked by the revolutionaries. Yeah. Like, it's insane. Um, and this kind of, it kind of brings me to my second point, and that it was not widely supported by the country. Okay. Not all the countries supported this, this kind of impromptu revolution, and this brings me to my third and final point. And it's this question of, was it actually successful? What were the goals of it? Uh, did it meet these goals that, that it had set forth? And I, I want to say kind of no. It didn't because it was one. It was very. It was impromptu. There was there was very little training. There was no formal Irish army. It was kind of just a really loose militia, and it's hard to even call them that. Uh, also, this this my second point. The whole country didn't support it. So, how can you have a, a successful revolution when some of the country is like, no, we don't really want anything to do with this. Um, and then, kind of thirdly, it was viciously put down by British rule. Uh, viciously put down by the British. In fact, all of the leaders of the Easter Rising were all killed. They were all executed. Oh, shit. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, 54% of the casualties in the Easter Rising were civilian. Oh, fuck. <laughs> um. 30% were British military and police and 16% were Irish rebels um, of the, of the 500 people that were killed. And on top of that, 2,600 were wounded. Uh, so, I mean, not great, not great, <laughs> not super great. Uh, but a lot of people kind of see this as the real first step to kind of kick the British out of Ireland, um, which I can kind of see, but I don't think that deems it successful. Yeah, I I really agree. And I think this is a really interesting one because I think some of our misconceptions are, I guess, more well-known to the historical crowd, which I guess our audience probably is if they're listening. But, like, I have a very basic knowledge of the Irish uprising and rebellion against the English. You know, just like the Sinn Féin and this revolution that we're talking about. I, I know I, like, have the vocab and it's sort of, like, taught as the one to to look out for, I guess. But I, you know, that's my misconception. That's the thing I don't know about it. And I think it's really cool that you picked one that we both had to learn was wrong. And that's kind of like the good part of this episode is we're learning and teaching at the same time. So, right. Exactly. That's a good one. Thanks. Ronan, right? Yeah. So Ronan, you got a really cool name. I hope we pronounced it right. That was a really good misconception to bring up to us. You got anything else about it? No, that was it. Okay, cool. So, next one that I'm going to do is a little less 
of a simple thing. It's just kind of a misunderstanding of the nature of history and it, it's a misunderstanding of the nature of sociology and history. All right. And Stephen, I know you know this and I know we've talked about this. Um, and it's the na- the nature of life expectancy. Right. So this is pretty simple and it's really quick. Right. Um, but we talk about life expectancy back in the old days being way lower right the life expectancy in medieval europe is about 30 and a lot of people kind of misconstrue that as being you know once you're 30 you're just waiting to die you know you're you're an old man (laughs) you know um (laughs) but the reason for that is because the infant mortality rate was so fucking high and so was the the like death rate of women who were uh, giving birth that the numbers really were brought down so if you were somebody in the old days who had six kids right you could expect three of those kids to make it to age two and you could expect two of those kids to make it to age 10 and that's really the thing bringing down these life expectancy rates Old men were still old men. Very commonly, people lived into their 80s or older, right? 30 isn't an old man, but this also sped up sort of, you know, cultural norms that we see today as kind of weird, sort of like young marriages, having children at age 13 and 14, stuff like that, because you needed as many chances as you could. Nine months is gone. That's, you know three-fourths of a year that you dedicate to a child that chances are isn't going to make it to to youth at all, right? And you also want to make sure that you, if you're the woman who's giving birth or the husband, you want to make sure that (laughs) everything is healthy and safe and you have as many chances and opportunities to have children because children were everything back then. So that's just a little (laughs) misconception that we see And people sort of, like, don't understand, you know, the low life expectancy doesn't mean that everybody is dropping dead in their 30s. It just means that once you're born, there's sort of an incubating period where you are much more at risk of death or injury. And once you break through the threshold of, like, 10, 12 years old, you're pretty good, except for, you know, random shit and diseases being prevalent and warfare and stuff like that. But... It doesn't affect the nature of youth. <laughs> you know, there weren't 30-year-olds walking around with white hair and long beards. Yeah, no, no, no. So that's just like a little a little misconception that yeah, I find no. really hilarious. <laughs> it's not really damaging. But a lot of people don't understand the nature of life expectancy. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I think one thing I want to add, and this is like a little bit going kind of off topic, but it's about infant mortal- mortality. Um, and you talked about how kids are everything and you're constantly trying to have kids. And this is true. But what some families would run into is, oh, shit, we got too many kids. We done had too many kids. We can't feed all these kids. <laughs> Let's just kill one of the kids. But really, though, it's like you got a baby. Where's baby sleeping? Ain't got a crib. It's sleeping in bed with mom and dad. Uh-oh, mom rolled over in the night. Yeah. There was a law passed in Bohemia in the 1500s. In Bohemia, as we know... um, it's sort of one of the more progressive counties of Europe mm. in Czechoslovakia. 
that babies were not allowed to sleep with their parents in the same bed because there were so many instances of parents rolling over in their sleep and killing their children. Right. Yeah, and if that was accidental or not, you're still killing a baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, so, that's a good point to bring up, Steve. <laughs> uh but no dude that that's a very that's a very good historical misconception it kind of gets me when i hear it too yeah i love that one uh anyway all right steven go ahead fire off that next misconception so my next misconception actually has a lot to do with uh what you just talked about and it's this idea that nothing really happened in the middle ages and and that the middle ages you know, got it is given its name because it's just in the middle between the end of the Roman Empire and the beginning of the Renaissance. If you're playing bad history bingo, <laughs> Stephen just is talking about the Middle Ages, so that is your free space. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what else did we mention? I bitched about how artists fuck everything up. No, but this idea, and that I kind of, I've, I've kind of heard this is, is, is that nothing really happened. I mean, that's kind of when I first found out about the middle ages, when I was first learning about the middle ages, that's kind of what I was told was, it was just, Oh, it was just this thousand year time period between the end of the Roman empire and the beginning of the Renaissance. It's like, yeah, bro, that's a thousand years. That's so long. The United States hasn't even been a country for a thousand years. It's a long <laughs> fucking time. Most countries haven't been countries for a thousand years. Yeah, and, and did you did you catch that I said that the United States hasn't been alive for a thousand years? It hasn't like been alive, one. dude. <laughs> that one. Um, but no, really, it's it's a really long time period, and a lot did happen. Uh, now, if if we're looking at the grand scale of things, it's easy to say this that nothing productive happened during the Middle Ages, and this is true, and it's also false. Um, a lot of stuff happened and was undone or changed, but I think a lot of the big building blocks of, of Western civilization were formed during the Middle Ages. I mean, our modern idea of what Europe is was formed during the Middle Ages. Our mo- modern idea of kind of what the Middle East is was formed during the Middle Ages. Uh, so it's hard to say that the Middle Ages nothing happened because France became a country during the middle ages britain became a country during the middle ages Spain islam became a religion during the yeah middle islam ages. became a religion during the middle ages um <laughs> a lot of the problems that the middle east is facing now has to do with what happened during the middle ages uh spain became unified during the middle ages uh portugal became a country during the middle ages portugal might be the only country that's been a country for a thousand years Portugal like has not changed an inch. Yeah. In like a That's billion years. That's very true. Years. <laughs> um Portugal's just kind of chilling. It's just kind of it's kind of just flying Han Solo over there doing its own real thing. Real quick, real quick fact. Do you know that the longest or oldest treaty still being upheld is a peace treaty between Britain and Portugal to be really? allies? Yeah. Really? Yeah, they've never had beef since I mean, who would really have beef with Portugal? I guess, yeah. <laughs> he, he's kind of like the younger cousin that you gonna just have to hang out with. But, like, you don't hate him, but he's just there. But also, Russia. Russia became a country during the Middle Ages. Like, from the ground up during the Middle Ages. It's just yeah. so so much happened that formed our whole entire idea of what Western civilization is and not just Western civilization either, but like we talked about Islam, 
Islam was formed during the Middle Ages. So much happened. Um, but off of that, I will say a, a war warfare was warfare was, was was prevalent in a way that we don't understand today. You mark off your space, Stephen, talking about total war. But total war <laughs> is is uh, is something that we that's our kind of war mindset now is the fact that when you go to war, you do it with the anticipation that you're not going to be fighting this person again. Like this is the war to end the, the war. This Sorry, is the... Tori. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in, in the middle ages and in, in the Roman empire too, but the Roman empire is different because it was the Roman empire, but it's a whole other thing. But during the middle ages, it was just kind of consistent warfare. You, you, you fight your neighbor and you chill for a little bit, and you fight again, and you chill for a little bit, and people were dying, and people were, you know, we talked, people died a lot during the Middle Ages. It just kind of happened. It's another reason why we this number is so skewed, is because, yeah, like, like, if you just chilled as a peasant, you probably could live to a ripe old age, but odds are you're going off to, you're either getting killed by, like, uh, marauding bands of, like, of, like, bandits, or... Bands uh, of bandits. Bands of bandits. Or bands on bands. <laughs> or, you know, the Black Plague is, like, ravaging your town uh, or some other disease. Or, you know, there's, like, there, there's there's tons of ways that you just kind of died during the Middle Ages. And it's yeah, so, like, just died. it's so cliche, but it's, like, it's true. Like, just, like, shit would kill you. And it's, like, we don't understand that today. Um, So, a lot of this stuff, I think that's why the Middle Ages lasted as long as it did is because... There was this era where progress was really kind of halted because people were just dying. I mean, the Crusades killed an untold amount of people. Um, but like to say that nothing happened during the Middle Ages is just just is really short sighted. It was the building blocks for how we understand civilization in a lot of the parts of the world today. Yeah, people who say that nothing happened in the Middle Ages have either a Roman stick up their ass or they like see the rapid growth of the enlightenment and they're just like oh that's like comparative to the thousand years of the middle ages like a hundred years did more to advance society whatever but like yeah you, you can't just like i know when we talk about the middle ages it's the thousand years of western history so like things are going on all over the world that you don't really equate into that but yeah a lot of shit happened in the middle ages most of what steven talks about happened in the middle ages you know <laughs> like it's very true social structures that were kind of the solid foundation for modern europe happened in the middle ages and uh yeah so that's a misconception that i hear i also hear that like the middle ages resorted to sort of like caveman like times you know where like uh the height of rome and, and like science it was all just like lost and though a lot of it was lost like a lot was gained as well. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A lot of culture grew during the Middle Ages too. And, you know, warfare became the science of the Middle Ages pretty much. Right, like exactly. Like talking about, it, it, they kind of perfected the nature of cavalry and the nature of, like, armed leaders, knights, as opposed to the centurion or something like that. Right, exactly. And you also have to understand that that Christianity played a massive role in the lives of, of medieval Europeans 
and then Islam in the lives of uh, people living in the Middle East. And so, and, and I use Europe, you know, well, like, it's and, interesting. Well, and, right, yeah. It, Islam was constantly, like, in Europe or touching Europe. You know, Spain was majorly Islam for the longest time. Sicily and Italy was Islam for the majorly longest time. And then you've got, you know, the entire notion of the back and forth in Central and Eastern Europe, you know. Like, Islam was as close to conquering Europe four times as, like anything you know what i mean it right. came down to the fucking wire and so you know that's really a development that a lot of people don't think about right and so and when you have religion being that so influential on your life you have to look at your priorities and the priorities of people living in the time period were not to understand enlightenment and to understand uh, like science and to make scientific discoveries that just wasn't their prerogative they would have been called a witch or like a warlock or you know like it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't what they it wasn't the prerogative of people of the time period the majority of people of the time period i should say yeah definitely that's a good one steven thanks man all right so here's my last one and it's a big one and it's one that a lot of people don't know about and is kind of difficult for a lot of people to understand. And it is the historical misconception. The final rapid fire. Fire off that gun. So this last one is that Jewish slaves built the pyramids. Now, this one is touchy because it's the basis pretty much for Abrahamic religions. Mm-hmm. Um, so here, here's what people believe, right? Slaves were forced to build pyramids in Egypt by corrupt and powerful pharaohs. The Jews were the primary slaves, and the pyramids were built on the backs of those who emigrated Egypt during the Exodus. Now, here is the... I don't want to say the truth, because history doesn't deal in truth. If you want truth, go take philosophy. Here's what we... (laughs) No, based on the archaeology. In June 2011, Egypt showed the world newly discovered tombs, approximately 4,000 years old. In these tombs were buried the artisans and workers who constructed the pyramids. These tombs contained common burial artifacts and ritualistic burial practices held for Egyptians, offerings in the afterlife, such as food and jars. Slaves didn't get these burials. There's no archaeological evidence at all that the pyramids of Egypt were built by slaves. And there is definitely zero evidence that places ancient Canaanites in slavery en masse during the construction period of these pyramids. Modern excavation sites show that the builders of the pyramids were paid laborers, actually, who were proud of their work and service to the pharaohs. Their burials were honorable and provided historical narratives to the average builder of the pyramids. They commonly ate meat, and they worked on the pyramids in three-month shifts. Now, this work was hard, but the workers were far from slaves. Now, this is kind of contrary to pretty much every teaching about the pyramids, right? The Jewish slave narrative is a really interesting one. And that's because the first pyramids are being built during the Old Kingdom period of ancient Egypt. During the 27th century BCE, 
the newest pyramids uh, of Egypt, the the pyramid of Ahmose the first is the most recent one, and it was built around 1525 BCE. Now, pyramid building spread throughout Sudan and the Nubians and the Kushite Empire, but when we're talking about the ones that would have directly been influenced, possibly by Jewish, Hebrew, Canaanite slaves. This is the area we're talking about. So you have this time frame of the 27th century BCE to around 1525 BCE. So it's a really large trunk, uh, chunk, a thousand years more of history. But the Canaanites, the original group that most believe the Jewish religion and culture stemmed from controlled land in modern day Israel and they were commonly subordinate to the Egyptians, or they were allies to the Egyptians in a time frame that doesn't make sense. So the time frame of their coexistence simply do not equate, and the narrative that the proto-Jews or proto-Canaanites left Egyptian bondage to found Canaan has no archaeological or historical basis other than the Book of Exodus. Modern-day Egyptians are really proud of the pyramids as being designed and constructed by Egyptians and really reject the notion at all of Hebrew or Jewish peoples being enslaved to build the pyramids. And that's because by the time the Canaanites were involved with Egyptian history, they had been done building pyramids for hundreds of years, right? And it's really interesting to note that we have this narrative that the Canaanites left Egypt and they started their own country in Israel. And it's it's dated with the walls of Jericho, you know, fighting against Jericho, mm. but that was much later than the last pyramids in Egypt being built. So it just doesn't make any sense. Along with the ethno-linguistic heritage, it, it really adds up in no way, shape, or form. Now, why is this touchy? I'm sure you know. Egypt yeah. now controls the archaeology in Egypt. And Egypt sort of has a history of hating Israel and have been known to bend narratives to fit political ideals. But Abrahamic religions also really put a lot of stock into the notion that Moses led the Jews away from Egyptian pharaoh's control in the book of Exodus. But nevertheless, there's still no extant evidence of Jewish slaves or slaves of any kind at all, for that matter, being involved in the construction of the pyramids, especially not the Great Pyramid of Giza or any other major ancient Egyptian pyramid. And I'm sorry to say it, but as far as history dictates now, the pyramids were built by Egyptians, Egyptian workers, Egyptian craftsmen. And we talked about the pyramids earlier they knew what they were doing. This wasn't a job where you just had thousands of slaves push a block into place. No, they used engineering and science behind it so that these huge blocks were moved with much more relative ease than that. So I don't know how to take this if you're a religious person or if you're not a religious person. Just know that we as historians do not take religious texts as primary sources because you can't because the motives behind them being written are debatable. But as far as history dictates the Jewish slave narrative of building the pyramids and leaving for Canaan, Canaan has no archeological basis 
yeah. whatsoever. And uh, I guess misconception kind of fights with belief in this sense. So if you want to believe that that happened, you can believe it. But in a historical sense, it's not factual at all. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. That's a, that I mean, and I I agree with you. It's a, it's a touchy subject, but you have to look. You can't be biased. Yeah, you just have you to look at facts. Because if you're biased on that, then you have to be biased on everything. Do you know right. what I mean? You can't claim, yeah, the Jews were slaves and they built the pyramids because it's written in the book of Exodus in the Torah. But then you can't, like, deny other things that are written in the Torah or other sort of, you know, religious mythological texts because then you're showing your bias. And the main goal of history, as we know, is to eliminate bias in presenting the facts. So, right. It's rough, you know. But you can't pick and choose. No, you definitely can't pick and choose, so that's right. why this one goes the way it goes. It's like yeah. we have no evidence that the Jews were slaves in Egypt. There's no evidence that slaves built the pyramids. That's the way it is. Sorry. <laughs> if we find some evidence, we'll change it, but it's been 4,000 years. And we don't have any evidence yeah. whatsoever. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a really good one. It's a yeah. really good one. And it's, I think it's an important one to talk about too. Thanks. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, Steven. Yes. Rapid fire. All right. Ciao. So for my last historical misconceptions, I actually wanted to kind of rattle off four of them. That I could take, take care of in one felt swoop. This is rapid fire within rapid fire. Exactly. Double rapid fire. Historical misconceptions. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, so the first three I'm going to talk about, or the first two I'm going to talk about, I should say, uh, <laughs> come from our listener, Cat. Thanks, Cat. Thanks, Cat. Uh, You're in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one I want to talk about, did Ben Franklin in, in, uh, discover electricity? Homie did not discover electricity. He All he did was discover that lightning in the sky was, in fact, electricity. Electricity had been known for, oh, thousands of years, I would say, uh, when people first discovered static electricity. In fact, we have these things called ancient batteries, which are really just exactly what they sounds like, batteries. They're ancient batteries made in clay pots. In fact, it was a very long process before a modern idea of what electricity actually is got to where it is. It wasn't like Brent Ben Franklin miraculously was like, I get it now. Uh, no, that's not how it worked. It was a very, very long, long process. All Ben Franklin did was he discovered the fact that lightning was just electricity. Um, and I mean, obviously I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to underplay that at all. It is important. Um, and it certainly is, is is an important chapter within the whole book, but it's not the book itself. No, Stephen, this is a good one because you have no idea how many people I know think Benjamin Franklin invented the light bulb. Oh, <laughs> man. <Yeah. laughs> uh, Jesus. Okay, second one uh, is, was Cinco de Mayo Mexico, Mexico's Independence Day? And the answer to that is a hearty no. It was not. Cinco, Cinco de Drinko? Cinco de Steven, Steven, what is the history of Cinco de Mayo? <laughs> Shut, Shut the, the fuck, fuck up. up. <laughs> <laughs> so Cinco de Mayo, it was uh, 
a very famous victory won by the Mexican uh, the Mexican people against the invading French. And it was a battle where the odds were stacked up crazy against the, the Mexican army, but they still managed to pull out a victory. Uh, so this is why this is this day is celebrated. It has happened on May the 5th, and this is why it's celebrated. However, I do have to say that France kind of just went in and conquered Mexico and kicked out the the, the, the emperor or king. I guess, Holy shit, next... Steven. Yeah. Cinco de Mayo is yesterday at the time of this release. Oh, oh shit. Oh, my Ew. God. <laughs> Inception. We're going to um, get fucking drunk. <laughs> yeah. I'll be I'll be working the next morning, so I won't be. But, uh, but no, so Cinco de Mayo was all it is is it's – I mean, not all it is. I'm not trying – again, not trying to underplay it. But what we celebrate Cinco de Mayo because of this famous victory – by the Mexican people against the French. Okay, the third one is sent in to us by Movie Date Night Podcast. Which, hey, uh, Greg and Lauren, best yeah. friends. Thanks, guys. Uh, this is one. Is this is another one of my favorites? It's the famous "Let Them Eat Cake." Steven, which, yeah. Did Marie Antoinette, Queen of France, say "Let them eat cake" at Versailles? Uh, fuck no. She did not. There's literally no evidence that she ever said that. Also, yeah. uh, Oh, do you want to go and do it? You were talking about what cake actually is? Yeah, I was going to say. So, cake does not mean the shit with icing on it, like we think it means today. (laughs) Cake in in revolutionary France referred to, like, the crumbs left over from, like, baked bread. Like caked in, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like left on, like 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 leftover crumbs from from baking bread. That shit with icing on it. I'm sorry, that made me laugh so hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so that's what you know, and she probably never even said that. Uh, and finally, my last one is that slaves were primarily sent to the United States to mainland uh, America. Which, Dave, as you know, that is not true in, like, the least bit. Yeah, like, most most slaves that settled in the New World were actually in South Central America and the Caribbean islands. The slave population in the American South, though it was self-sustaining after a while, it was a very, very, I don't want to say very small minority, but it really paled in comparison to the population of slaves throughout the rest of the new world right exactly that's where the majority of them kind of ended up and then they made their way to mainland united states um so that's it those are my four kind of rapid rapid fire historical misconceptions rapid rapid fire historical misconceptions yeah um so wait shit is that the show that's the show steven I got a few things I want to say. Yeah. So you better listen up. First thing I want to say is my personal hero, who you may have heard me speak about in episode six, Leaders of the Abolitionist Movement, Harriet Tubman, was just approved to be printed on the next iteration of the $20 bill. And nobody was more excited about this than me. If you haven't heard that episode, go check it out because it gives a lot of insight into who Harriet Tubman was and the historical misconceptions or misunderstandings behind her as a character. She is actually my hero, I think I would say. Um, Another thing I want to say is that 
This is episode 25, and I've had a lot of fun doing this with you, Stephen. And I just want to thank everybody who's been listening along the way. The new people listening now, you can go back and listen to older episodes, but I wouldn't because they all suck. (laughs) Somebody told us that they binge-watched the entire show in a week or listened to the show in a week. Fuck, dude, I wouldn't do that, so (laughs) good on you. Um, That's a lot. But yeah, we... We've gotten close to 10,000 views now. It'd be really cool if we pushed over that rink while we were away. Uh, We've got some stuff coming out. But I just want to thank everybody so far, friends and family and strangers on the internet and friends that we've made through the internet through this podcast. Thanks, guys, for listening. Um, Anything else you need to say, Stephen? Yeah, I just want to say, you know, we goof around on this show quite a bit. But, like, in all seriousness, uh, this has been so much fun to do and it's been kind of a huge uh learning experience for me it's it's been fun to kind of learn just how to do this and uh dave and i've said this before this wasn't we didn't start this with any intention of people like actually really listening it was more of like hey we'll have fun doing this we'll do just what we want to do in a way we want to do it and um you know if people listen to it they listen to it but this is kind of just we want to do it to kind of talk more and hang out more um, yeah, and, it also started like when I moved away, and Steve right. and I have been really close for nine years now. Just yeah. like not as just friends, but like kind of on the map. We've been really close. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so this was just a way for us to kind of catch up, and that's why those earlier episodes kind of they they suck, where we just talk about movies and shit. Right, we, we get all that shit out of the way before we actually start the episode. Yeah, uh, but. But yeah, so it's been like it's been really really cool that people are like actually the fact that somebody binge listened the whole entire our whole entire catalog in less than a week that like like that was that 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 was huge when that's like when they told maybe that. 28 hours of content. Yeah, like that's huge <laughs> and that's crazy that. and the fact that like you know, we're not that, that that it wasn't the first person who told us that they binged our entire show or that they're binging our entire show. Like that's awesome, and you know, I think that that's a lot of the motivation to keep doing this, and there's a lot of the motivation to make it better, which is why we're taking this break so that we can kind of come in fresh uh, next month in June and just really kind of hit it out of the park and hit the ground running and have some really really great episodes for you guys. Um, but. You know, real quickly, I want to say if you if you if you like if you like this what you hear, you can find us on Bad History Podcast at Podbean dot com um, on iTunes. You can you can uh, subscribe to us there. Uh, download the episodes directly, have them sent to your phone. Uh, Stitcher, uh, TuneIn Radio, Google Play Music, Facebook Bad History Podcast, Twitter at Bad History Cast, email Bad History Podcast at Gmail dot com. If you want to reach out to us, any of those places are great. Um, let us know. And, uh, and I mean, we'll, we're, we're really excited to see kind of where this, where this thing goes and, uh, what the, the next 25 episodes is going to look like. Yeah. And we're going to be pretty much compiling a master list of topics during the break so that we don't fucking not have something planned. So please send those in to the Gmail or the Facebook or however you want to get them to us because we need you guys. We really need you. Yeah, we do. (laughs) Like I'll, I'll. I'll think of an idea randomly and instantly write it down because I know I'm going to forget it and just be like, SOL. And I think, I think you know, going into 
uh, the new the, the new season, I guess. And the the topics are going to be a little bit more coherent, and they're going to be a little bit more like they're going to kind of make sense in terms of like they're they're not just going to be all over the place. So um, animals, animals. That was fun though. Uh, but anything else you want to add, Dave? Uh, I just want to give some shout-outs. Uh, we got to give shout-outs to Movie Date Night Podcast. Our friends Lauren and Greg, go check them out. They have a really cool idea for a podcast, and it's executed really well. It's sort of something that I kind of wanted to do. Because, like, if you've been listening to What Have You Done This Week, I sort of put their podcast into practice where you introduce movies to your significant other, and then you talk about it. Um, but they're, they're really great. We actually, during the break, have a special surprise with them coming out. Um, everybody who is a fan listening, all the other podcasts who they tweet us out, we really appreciate it. Um, all the directories that decided to put us on there, I don't know why. I don't know <laughs> what this is, if it's a history show or a comedy show or a failure to do both. Let's just say it's that. <laughs> but we really appreciate you guys listening. Um I really think that's it for me. I promised t-shirts so long ago they never came out and they never will. So fuck you guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I, no, I think that's it. Um, yeah. Thank you. Everyone who's, who's been tweeting, tweeting, giving us love, uh, shot of history. I want to say they consistently give us love on Twitter. Uh, they're a great podcast. I would definitely, definitely check them out. Um, and yeah, thank you guys. And here's to 25 more. Happy history, guys, and good scrolls. See y'all later.